This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of Ghosted, an American story, written and narrated by New York Times best-selling ghostwriter Nancy French, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. This is the Prophetic Politics Podcast. I'm Nick Rodriguez. I'm Sabidi Anyabwile. And I'm Ben Brophy. So we've referred to this one before in prior episodes, but we've never done an episode about it. Um, Today, we're going to talk about religious liberty. And I'm just going to say a couple things to sort of set the table, and then uh, we can talk about kind of what it means for us um, you know, as Christians um, and just as people of faith generally, because really religious liberty is about uh, kind of people of faith of, of many faiths. Um, so just like in our last episode, our last episode, we talked about speech and just like speech, religious liberty and the question of religious liberty in America is governed also by the First Amendment to the Constitution. In this case, it's the first part of the First Amendment, which says Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So um, the basic historical context for this is that, you know, in the past, in other countries, there are what are called, and in other countries today, there are what are called established religions, the official state religion. So think like the Church of England, um, you know, or some, you know, some for many years, the Catholic Church was the official church in many, many countries. Um, so you obviously, you know, our uh, America was colonized by the British, so you do have the Church of England, and you look at English history, and what you see is there is a really contested question for some of English history about what will the state religion be? Who's the monarch? What religion are they? Are they Catholic, or are they Protestant, or otherwise? This led to conflict. It led to persecution. It sometimes led to war. Um, and so the new Americans drafting the Constitution said, we don't want that. We don't want to fight over what the established state religion is. So we're gonna say that there will not be an established state religion. And so there's that clause, there shall be no law respecting an establishment of religion. Um, and um, over the years, a vernacular has arisen around kind of this set of concepts in, the, in that first sentence of the First Amendment. So on the one hand, you often hear the phrase separation of church and state, uh, progressives like to use that phrase. Conservatives like to remind us that the words separation of church and state don't show up in the text of the First Amendment. Um, but there's a question as to, but, but there is something about, you know, there, will, there won't be an established state religion. There's something there about church and state having some boundaries between them. Um, it's just a question of what kind of boundaries those are. Religious conservatives, on the other hand, are also very interested in the second part of that sentence. Um, Congress shall make no law prohibiting the free exercise of religion. So the first part of the sentence is called the Establishment Clause. You know, Congress shouldn't make a law establishing a religion. And the second part is called the Free Exercise Clause. Congress won't prohibit uh, uh, the free exercise of religion. So this is where we get our kind of concept of religious liberty in America. Um, the First Amendment gives the frame, and then a federal law called the Religious Freedom Restoration Act goes further to try to establish what that means, at least for the federal government. It tries to put the First Amendment, this, this clause into action. Um, and here's what it says. It says, government shall not substantially burden a person's exercise of religion, even if the burden results from a rule of general applicability. And secondly, it says that the government may substantially burden an, a person's exercise of religion only if it demonstrates that the application of the burden to the person is number one, uh, in furtherance of a compelling governmental interest, and number two is the least restrictive means of furthering that compelling governmental interest. So what you see in all kind of religious liberty discourse is this language of trade-offs. Um, this idea of when is it okay for the state to impose on um, sort of my exercise of religion, and you see some conditions set out by this law that try to navigate those boundaries. Um, so, um, with this in mind, there are many other laws that are kind of made with religious exemptions in mind. So there's a burden imposed by a law, but they say, ah, but certain, you know, uh, certain categories of organizations that are churches or religious organizations or ministries are exempted. So even the landmark Civil Rights Act um, of 1964 contains these sorts of exemptions. So there are non-discrimination statutes in employment, for example, 
but there are religious exemptions to some of those statutes. Religious employers, for example, are allowed to discriminate on the basis of, do you share the same faith as me, for example. Um, ministers, when you're hiring ministers, they're exempted from non-discrimination requirements entirely, usually. Um, and religiously affiliated schools may actually exempt themselves from several of these non-discrimination uh, requirements as well if they choose to. Um, now, there are limits to these protections. And just to give some obvious examples, uh, the state we know has a compelling government interest in preventing, say, human sacrifice. So you can't say, hey, my religion, you know, allows human sacrifice, and so therefore, free exercise, don't stop me from doing that. You would say, well, um, laws like, um, you know, a law that prevents human sacrifice is in the interest of all, we would say, uh, and it accomplishes that. There's no other way to accomplish it than by saying that's not allowed. <laughs> and so therefore it meets the test. Um, there are other courses you can talk about. We, you know, we don't allow polygamy, uh, same, even though some religions are for, you know, allow polygamy, same kind of argument applies. Um, but there are more difficult cases that come out of this push and pull. Um, the one that, you know, many of us might've heard of um, is the case of the, the Christian baker. Um, and the question was, can that person be compelled by a non-discrimination statute to bake a cake for a same-sex wedding, even though that baker says that, you know, uh, he doesn't believe in that and therefore shouldn't be forced to do that. Um, so he's saying, this is a burden on my exercise and my belief. The state says, we have a compelling interest in ensuring that same-sex couples are not subject to discrimination. So how do you make that trade-off? Um, there are others. Uh, the so-called Hobby Lobby case um, is about whether a federal mandate that employers provide contraception, um, you know, uh, violates the free, free exercise clause if the employer then says, well, wait, I've got religious beliefs, forcing me to do that violates my beliefs, you can't make me. And so there's another trade-off there. Um, there are older greatest hits in this discourse too. Um, if, you were, if, you, if you're my age or Ben's age, you would have grown up learning about prayer in public schools and that's okay or not. Um, you would have grown up learning about nativity scenes on public property or monuments of the Ten Commandments on public property and whether that's okay. Those, those are more about establishment religion than they are about free exercise of religion because they're about whether or not the state kind of is endorsing right? Like that particular religion by having some kind of monument on public property about it. And that's just talking about one religion, Christianity, let alone the hundreds or thousands of other religious groups that also need to be considered. Um, so just two examples that are small, but give, make the point. Um, there's a Supreme Court case called Goldman v. Weinberger in 1986. Um, the Air Force has regulations on headgear, um, and an Orthodox Jew said, well, I'm, I'm required by my religion to wear a yarmulke. Um, this is an impingement on my right to free exercise of my religion. So how do you trade those two things off? The Air Force's kind of regulations uh, for safety and any number of other reasons. And then the Orthodox Jews uh, uh, objection to that. Um, there's another one called Employment Division v. Smith in 1990. Um, this is, you know, uh, a religion which says smoking peyote is part of a religious ritual, but peyote is an illegal drug under the controlling law, which sort of law, which law dominates in that case. So every religious freedom case turns on one or more of these trade-offs. Um, and it often can feel complicated and it can often feel zero sum. So that's kind of the frame of what religious liberty looks like uh, in this country right now. Um, and so let me go ahead and ask you, Thabiti, um, what does the Bible teach us about religious liberty? One of these days, we're just going to have you go ahead and ask Ben, you know, let, let Ben uh, sort of give I'm the sure biblical answers. Some stuff to add. <laughs> <laughs> Ben's got the sweet spot, man. He bats cleanup uh, on, on me and you. So I'm, yeah, I'm a little Why jealous. are you messing with the system? True. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to do homework. You guys do the homework. It's so great. <laughs> well, no, this is, this is a topic that should be in the wheelhouse of every Christian, really. Um, because in many respects, what we call religious liberty, uh, at least in the United States, is the gift of Christians to the country, um, to some extent to the world. Um, it, like so many things that we talk about in terms of our basic framing document, the constitutions and uh, so on and so forth, and the rights that it grant, you don't have a straight proof text to draw a line from in the Bible, right? So there, you're not going to look in the F Bible and find those two halves of 
what we call religious liberty, you know, the, the non-establishment clause and the free exercise clause. That's just not in the Bible. But Christians reading their Bibles well have, have often gone to a variety of texts that seem to make the common assumption of something that looks like religious liberty, particularly growing up out of sort of liberty of conscience. So what I think I want to do is just sort of cite real quickly a number of texts so this doesn't turn into a sermon, and then kind of make about four points, um, four distinctions that Christians have made that, that have, have led Christians to some notion of religious liberty. So first text would be Matthew 13, 24 to 30, uh, the parable of the wheat and tares, um, from Jerome down to Luther, down to Menno Simons and the Anabaptists, uh, Christians have read that text and understood it to mean that um, wheat, which is symbolic of Christians, grows up together with tares, which are symbolic of, of non-Christians. And that that parable says it will be God who at the end um, separates them, right? And so uh, they infer from that a kind of religious tolerance. Uh, and they infer from that the, the conclusion that we shouldn't use force um, to, to make that separation, that, that that prerogative belongs to God alone. Then you come to texts like Matthew 22, um, where Jesus is approached uh, and questioned about uh, a coin, or he, he uses a coin, he's, he's questioned about paying taxes to Caesar, he uses a coin, uh, and you'll know the famous line from verse 21, uh, render unto Caesar what is Caesar, and unto God what is God's. Um, and so that text sort of lays a foundation um, for what we might call different spheres, the, the governmental sphere versus the, um, the sacred sphere, the sphere of the church. And then you have a, a ton of texts, um, maybe most famous would be Matthew 19 and the rich young ruler, where the rich young man comes, talks to Jesus, Jesus talks to him about basically uh, eternal life. And the young man, loving his possessions, walks away from Jesus, walks away from the gospel. And Christians have looked at texts and many other texts like it and said, you know, the one thing Jesus did not do in that context is call down fire from heaven on the man. He didn't, he didn't crush him to the ground. He didn't destroy him. Um, the man made a choice. And, and in that choice is a certain kind of liberty. Uh, and that liberty, if our Lord allowed it, should be allowed um, in our government. And then you see a whole bunch of texts, um, you know, across the Bible that sort of lay emphasis on persuasion when it comes to um, conversion, when it comes to religious ideals. Acts 17, 17, Acts 18, 8, 9, Paul's there in Ephesus. He's persuading with people uh, day to day. Uh, we see the same thing in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20, when Paul likens us to ambassadors who are in the world uh, persuading men to be reconciled to God. First Peter three fifteen, Peter says there we should be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. So just across the Bible, what we see is the use of persuasion when it comes to the exchange of religious ideals. And so there are, there are sort of distinctions to be made, right? There's distinctions that Christians have made between the two tables of the law, that uh, the first table is about loving God, those first four commandments. The next table is about loving neighbor. And so there's a, a, a distinction between those two tables, which actually map onto a distinction between two spheres, um, the distinction between the church and the state. So it's the church that has responsibility for um, teaching men to love God. It's the state that has responsibility for sort of enforcing justice in relationship between, uh, between people. So you, you've got sort of um, Matthew 22, the church, um, teaching people to love God. And you've got Romans 13, uh, the church enforcing relationships between citizens. And of course, those are two different swords, aren't they? Um, so that the church uses the sword of the word and the church uses the sword of, of weapons, of, of coercion. Um, and, they're, and they're producing two different outcomes. So the church is, is meant to produce a kind of, or excuse me, the state is meant to produce a kind of compliance using the sword of the state. 
where the church is aiming for a conversion using the sword of the word. And it's as you see those distinctions across the scripture that you have, I think, there in principle, uh, something resembling religious freedom uh, and even something that is compatible with um, a, a understanding of the separation of, of church and state um, insofar as what's being described there are really different spheres with different authorities and different tools and outcomes. Um, and of course, you know, sort of most famous among, in the United States at least, uh, on this issue would be someone like Roger Williams, um, sort of early um, religious leader who has a vision for um, these kinds of distinctions, um, goes so far as to found Rhode Island as a colony um, built upon religious liberty because that wasn't a thing <laughs> in the colonies up to that point. We had established churches in the colonies. Um, and so, you know, this is, this is something, again, that's being developed in a sort of sectarian, um, intramural conflicts between different Christian sects, different Christian groups, uh, and, the, and the solution uh, for Williams and, and soon uh, many other Christians who follow would be what we call religious liberty. Yeah, that's, um, let, me, let me push on something you said at the very beginning, which I think will be important to our discussion later. You said, in many ways, it is the gift of Christians to the world. What did you mean by that? Yeah, um, again, we're talking about Roger Williams. We're talking about uh, other Christian groups that, that follow in his wake. Uh, this, is, this has been considered Christian reflection um, for, gosh, a long time. Again, going all the way back to Jerome. Um, and, and you alluded to this earlier, in most places, you don't really have something um, resembling religious freedom uh, for most of human history, that there's this kind of overlap between government, culture, and religion, that they're sort of synonymous, right? Um, and even in, in, the, in the sort of Reformation, that, that's still the case by and large, and uh, coming into the new world to be quote unquote civilized was to be European. And to be European was to be Christian. You know, those things were kind of, kind of overlapping in some really unhelpful ways and unhealthy ways. But it was just the echo of the fact that in most places in human history, um, there isn't this kind of tolerance and liberty for worshiping differently. Um, that would get you defined as other uh, and even defined as sort of seditious uh, in the eyes of the state. Um, and so again, we could, we could name places right now that don't enjoy the kind of religious freedom that we often take for granted in this country, whether that's China, whether that's several Middle Eastern countries um, and other places that forbid the, the free exercise of religion. And anything you wanna add as our cleanup hitter? <laughs> um, I mean, I think, I think Sabidi did a good job um, pulling out freedom of conscience uh, throughout scriptures. Um, that is something the founding fathers were deeply concerned with, John Adams in particular, who I think of as being a champion for freedom of conscience. Um, so that, that's one way. I think we see a biblical pattern of um, using, our, using the advantages our citizenship confers as well, right? So Paul famously appeals to Caesar in Acts 25, uh, uses appeals to his citizenship in other places. And so that's, those rights are not, you know, something he's arguing from scripture as, you know, why he should be able to appeal to Caesar, but rather he's taking advantage uh, wisely of the rights that that citizenship affords. And so I think we as Christians now have the same freedom afforded to us, right? So if religious liberty is extended to us, um, we would be, we would be wise to, to use that to the, fullest advantage that we can. Um, so that's the, that's the only caveat I would add. Is there something to here in, in, I think, Christian history, which I think is controlling, but which I think sets a pattern. You say Christianity is born in a context, the Roman Empire, which is a kind of multi-ethnic uh, and also multi-religious uh, kind of place. So obviously certain religions favored over others, but lots of minority religions, Judaism and Israel among them, and really born as a minority religion for that reason, minority within this state, um, persecuted, and that persecution often used as a means to scatter and spread the gospel. 
and I think what it what I think it says to me is that's our sort of default original position, right? Is sort of religious liberty, the ability to simply practice unimpeded uh, and to and to be able to preach the gospel is probably the highest sort of value that we would treasure. And it's one that we would sort of disobey the civil law in order to uh, practice, but it's actually should be a position we're quite comfortable with. This idea that we live in these societies where the vast majority of people identify as Christian, even whether they kind of are or not, is actually sort of anomalous vis-a-vis uh, -vis those very, very early times. I don't know. I'd be interested in your guys' thoughts on that. No, I think that's exactly right. And I think that's the confound that's um, sort of messing up both our appreciation of religious liberty and, and our practice of it, right? So, so religious liberty is, is really born out of a kind of persecuted church right, out of, a, out of a minority church, out of a persecuted church. Uh, and to the extent that the church, at least in America, uh, has enjoyed a kind of majority status uh, and enjoyed uh, some widespread cultural influence that it's cherished and held on to, it's, it's ceased to see itself as um, a sort of kingdom on the margins uh, and a kingdom kind of persecuted. And so often its view of religious liberty is distorted um, to the extent that we sort of some care about Christian liberty, but don't want to fight to guarantee it for other groups, for example. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think you raise a good historical point uh, about the social location of the church and how it's, how it's led to reflection on these kinds of issues uh, and what we kind of take for granted in many respects today. And I'm not a, I'm not a perfect student of history here, but you have that flourishing of the church in those early days, and you know it's sort of there's a, there's a there's more of a downhill trend after the Roman emperor converts to Christianity and it becomes a state religion, and you start to begin to see the of church and state, and the witness gets muddled by that. I think, um, you know, yeah, yeah. Well, I, it is true that that the sort of blending of church and state has almost always been bad for both church and state, right? Uh, so, so both spheres kind of suffer when those things get muddled. Um, but, you know, Nick, in that, in that you hear it said sometimes romantically that, you know, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Well, the blood of the martyrs has also been the extinguishing of the church in places too, um, lest, lest we be too romantic about yep. uh, periods of persecution and whatnot. Yeah, I mean, I think... That's that was my addendum, right? Like Constantine comes in in the third century um, and makes Christianity the state religion, and and yeah, we see a lot of syncretism from that point on, which is a problem. But at the same time, uh, Christians weren't being fed the lions anymore, and so that would be yeah. a good thing. So I, you know, I would, I think it's easy to to think you know what God is up to in persecution, yeah. persecution, and I think that's probably arrogant. Um, so I don't know. I don't know. I just think, you know, I don't know exactly what the Lord was up to in making Christianity the state religion in Rome. Um, I know I'm grateful that Christians were martyred at a far less number. Um, but right. I'm, so I also mourn syncretism, right? Because that leads to a cultural Christianity that doesn't save. Well, and I think to me, this goes back to what you said about like religious liberty as a gift, right? Because it, avoids syncretism and it also avoids the being fed the lions part right yeah. which is that, that that's kind of a that's a twofer that we haven't enjoyed for most of history yeah. Amen. Amen. and religious liberty well practiced right like that's, that's right. Yeah, exactly well, yeah exactly well and so we're going to get into that after we take this break that's exactly the question is what is religious liberty well practiced so we'll talk about that after the break all right everyone we are back and so let me just ask us uh, basic question, we are now in a modern sort of state which has as a guiding explained this principle of religious liberty, um, dearly bought, um, quite important. Christians are active in political space and they're act we are active in talking about religious liberty. So basic question here is, what do we get right about our approach to religious liberty in this country and what are some of the things we, we get wrong? Well, I think one of the things we get wrong um, is a sort of contraction of that liberty to all religious groups, right? Mm -hmm. You did a good job in the opening comments of talking about sometimes this, this freedom lies in tension with other, 
other principles or other freedoms. Uh, I'm not exactly thinking about that. I'm thinking more about um, the ways in which, again, um, at least from a Christian perspective, Christians sometimes are defensive of our own liberty, but um, ignorant to or indifferent to or even oppositional to the liberty of other groups. Uh, and so that'd be one thing that we we sometimes don't do very well is understand that this liberty is meant to be applied to all citizens. Um, and it grants the ability of citizens to worship according to the dictates of their conscience, which is to say they may not become Christians. Um, and um, so we, we don't want to turn this into a sword and into coercion, either by limiting um, freedoms or trying to find ways to bully people into into the church um the yeah the thing i'd add i I think the thing that we well get largely right is at least over the past like 30 to 40 years there's been a a lot of effort which an article we all read by david french before this podcast lays out is just how how many legal efforts have been made to protect uh religious liberty including things like the right to pray in schools uh, and things of that sort. And so there has been a concerted effort to kind of mark out um, religious liberty exceptions for all sorts of things um, that, as French points out, has created a, a strong citadel um, against, you know, cultural headwinds, right? So if we, if we, or if Christians who are afraid that the cultural headwinds are turning against us, think that that's going to immediately rob us of all religious liberty. There's, there's quite a few legal precedents that um, will at least take time to overturn at the very least. Uh, I'm not convinced that all those are going to go away tomorrow, but that that is a bit of the um, fear among some. And I guess that's what I would say we get wrong is there is a, there is a fear um, that, you know, we're all going to be, rounded up and locked up like really, really soon. Now, you know, I don't want to diminish, you well, know. It's starting to get that impression from consuming certain uh, media and or commentators on the issue. Sure. Um, and, you know, there are certainly advocates out there for, you know, removing tax exempt status uh, and things of that sort. I, it's not a, I don't think there is a huge movement to reform clergy tax law right now um that could change um so yeah i think broadly there has been a concerted effort to make the most of our religious liberty and i think that that is a good and valuable thing to fight for insofar as it extends to freedom of conscience for everyone um and i think what we get wrong a little bit is being overly fearful now i don't want to say that there's no reason to be concerned about a diminishment of religious liberty. Um, but I don't think it's as bad as the, the doomsayers would, would have you think. At least not yet. Yep. Yep. No, I think, I think, I know, I think, I think that's right. And I think that to the point around sort of the majority uh, sort of piece of it, like this idea that we're you know, kind of culturally, at least a kind of majority Christian country. I think we need to take that really, really seriously in terms of sort of the way that the way that we look at uh, sort of. So I'll just give an example. In preparing for this episode, I googled religious freedom cases in the U.S. and I got this nice. There are lots of lists, right? But lots of bulleted lists of often there's Supreme Court cases because you got to decide a difficult question, and nine out of ten of them had to do with some branch of Christianity, right? Mm-hmm. As opposed to Islam, Judaism some other religion, et cetera. Now, I think that just means you gotta be mindful, right? Like you're, go- you're gonna have lots of advocates standing up for religious freedom for Christians. You are just commensurately gonna have fewer uh, standing up for religious freedom for those of other faiths. And so I think there's an extra vigilance that's called for. And I think there are some um, Christian organizations that I think model this well, as I understand it, um, in trying to kind of be even-handed as it were and saying religious, you know, a threat to religious liberty for one is a threat to religious liberty for all, um, essentially. And I think we're at our best when we when we do that, when we stand side by side with folks in other faith groups in, in defending the principle writ large. Yeah, I think Alliance Defending Freedom has done cases for, um, I know of one that involved the Muslim. They've certainly done one for Christian. They've done several cases for Christians. So that's the one organization that's part of that movement that I 
um, am loosely aware that they've done more than just Christian cases. But again, you're right in that the, the majority of their cases are, are Christian. So um, surely some of that is, is numbers based, as you mentioned, like where there's just more Christians, um, but also we should be advocating, advocating for other groups to, to have a seat at the table as well. Yeah. Amen. What, one of the thought brothers in terms of something we, we're maybe not doing too well, mm. you guys have talked about uh, the fear and the, the cultivation of fear that's happening out there. But I, I think we, we may be leaving our churches too comfortable in the presumption of um, this right and, and this right yeah. remaining yeah. And, and not sort of helping them in their discipleship to sort of understand the place of persecution in the Christian life and suffering um, and to sort of take an attitude of, yes, I want to protect the right, but not, I don't want it to become idolatrous. I don't, I don't want to be, begin to think that, you know, my future is tied up with this right um, in, in ways that, you know, only we should sort of tie our futures up with God and who God is and his faithfulness and, um, and so this is a little bit downstream. It's not sort of on the issue itself, but in terms of Christian formation and discipleship, um, I think we are maybe forming more worriers, uh, people who worry about this, than we are sort of forming disciples who realize that it may be, may be a day where this is just part of cross-caring and we may need to suffer um, in following the Lord without this freedom and without this right. I think you're right to me to like, let's not romanticize persecution, but let's also not like think it's the worst possible thing that could happen. Right. Mm -hmm. And like, just to take one example that you talked about earlier, Ben, it's like, you know, since when is like tax exempt status, you know, like <laughs> so important, right? <laughs> like, you know, um, like it's a nice to have, right. It's a, it's a right. We enjoy it is not an entitlement. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a kind of nice that like you get that, you know, for being by dint of being a religious organization or religiously affiliated organization as it were. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah. And well, <laughs> this is, no, go ahead. Yeah. this is far afield, but I, I do. Yeah. I do. Churches will often talk about, you know, housing allowance and things like that as, um, yeah. as a benefit. And it's like, well, maybe man, I'm going to get myself in trouble. Maybe you should pay your pastors enough that they don't need a fringe benefit from the government. Um, uh, but that's so, okay. Just, just to get the background here, right. It's, it's tax law, uh, gives sort of some extra tax favorable treatment. If we as a church give our pastor a housing allowance, as opposed to more salary money. Is that right, Ben? That's what yeah, no, I, about? I should yeah. Full disclaimer, the churches that we are a part of, that I'm a part of, that I am in conversations with, they are all very generous. So this is not, this is no sub <laughs> of uh, the churches that we know and love um, in this area. But I think, I just have a lot of pastor friends who, you know, yeah, who, who will often hear that the housing benefit and the tax status is, is part of the package. And it's kind of like, well, not really. Um, Should, shouldn't be looking for a handout from the government to uh, be faithful to biblical principles, basically, right, Ben? Uh, that's a, that I, hey, man, that's a good line. <laughs> uh, Again, it's a nice thing that yeah. at some point someone decided, right? Like, the yeah, tax law should allow us, you know, make it e even easier for churches yeah. to stretch their budgets further and pay their ministers more, essentially. And it has, but it's hundreds, not, it has you know, hundreds of years of precedent in English law, right? So it's not like it came out of nowhere. Like, this truly has been around for a long, long time. So it's not, it's not crazy that it just, we imported that to, to the U.S., right? Um, but again, as you say, you know, if we, if we lost tax status, like, the, the world... The world will not fall down. The churches will not cease to exist. Um, yeah, all of those things. Yeah. I'd, I'd say one other thing we get wrong is, I mean, I, I think the thing I worry about sometimes is when a religious freedom case or question comes into the public debate, there's kind of a oversimplification of it on the part of some Christian advocates where they, well, clearly the religious freedom provision demands this. And usually this is sort of complete capitulation to the Christian position, right? Which is exactly not the point of religious freedom, 
right? Like it's, it's not meant to be that the Christian position always dominates. It's that there's a way for the Christian position to coexist alongside other worldviews. Um, we've talked about pluralism in prior episodes. I think this is really, really important because actually, frankly, I would actually say you want to set your religious freedom advocacy such that you would be just as happy with the outcome if you were in the minority as if you were in the majority, right? Like, because you, you need to be, basically you need to prepare for a day when, yeah, truly, we don't even have a majority of people who culturally say they're Christian, let alone those who are kind of actual believers. Um, you kind of have, you want a religious freedom policy that protects, protects minorities, um, you know, and I think doesn't sort of, you doesn't try to cement one particular, like, Ben, you and I were talking last week about sort of the back and forth on sort of sexual ethics, right? And I think sometimes we err in saying we just want the state to kind of represent our entire worldview and the way it makes law. Because what that basically means is that once public opinion turns against you, the sort of advocates on the other side that you defeat are going to say, well, fine, now I've got the power. I'm going to force Christians to accept my interpretation of the law. And you just got a back and forth based on whoever's in the majority. What you really want is coexisting spheres of differing beliefs. Um, and away, I mean, that's not always eminently possible, but I think much of religious freedom discourse is about actually doing that to the best extent you can. I don't know. What do you guys think? Well, I think that's right. And, and I, was, I was just sitting here imagining, Nick, as you got started with that, um, some listeners just, you know, clutching their pearls. At, at the thought that they wouldn't have those protections that advantage them in the law. And, and I think if, if, if anybody is listening was kind of metaphorically pearl clutching or literally pearl clutching, <laughs> uh, I, I think the question to then ask is, am I trusting princes? Am I trusting horses and chariots? Or am I trusting God, right? Uh, because to practice religious liberty well in the way that you see it, um, sort of implicitly across the New Testament. Um, you have to trust uh, God with your life, with your standing in society, and with the conversion of other people. Um, and um, you've got to trust God with bringing you into contact with people who make religious claims that differ from yours and uh, who may seek a kind of political power in the way that you're describing, Nick. Um, all of this is under the providence of God and um, the sovereignty of God. And we have, to, we have to look to him and trust him in this way. And, and that too, I think, is sometimes undernourished um, when we come to this topic. Yeah, there, it strikes me as we have this conversation, there's so much overlap with the conversation we had about syncretism. Um, and and maybe, there is, maybe there is something, you know, quote unquote, prophetic to say about fear as it has infected our public discourse as Christians. Like that just seems to be a reoccurring theme in a lot of ways. Um, and one that's just out of step with what the Bible would have us do. Um, so there's something there. Yeah. I mean, are you, are you fearful of living in a society, for example, where, you know, this, we're nowhere on our way to this demographically, but are you fearful of living in a society where the majority of people are Muslims and you're in a minority, right? Like, yeah. or are you, you know, like, is that, is that going to be a problem for you? Would you like, you know, a multi-ethnic, multi-religious society in which actually religious freedom protects us all. Oh, and by the way, you're suddenly in a mission field that you weren't in before, um, you know, if you, if you find yourself in that sort of equilibrium. Well, and I think there's benefits to clearing away a lot of the cultural Christianity baggage that we have, right? Like there is, there is all sorts of difficulties um, that come with being like a quote unquote power block. Whereas like, if we stop being in the business of politics or culture warrioring or whatever, um, and, and we're more in the, more focused on, you know, the mission of the church, that I could see the Lord using that to benefit his people in ways that are unexpected and, you know, quite incredible to be a part of. I mean, we don't, we don't have to go far for ex examples of this. I mean, the underground church in China seems to be thriving over the past 30 years. And, you know, of course, yeah, I don't know the numbers exactly because how can we, but um, yeah, I think Jesus is going to build his church uh regardless of what the political system is and i think we need to trust that 
Um, and so I would expect um, the clearing away of cultural Christianity in this country um, could be intensely helpful. If there's no cultural benefit to being a Christian, then people who are claiming Christ, it's like, oh, this, this is a much clearer testimony to the people around you. Like, wow, Jesus must really be valuable because they're willing to give up status, wealth, all that sort of stuff. I mean, you see this in, you know, first and second Thessalonians, right? They're giving up everything uh, after Paul had been there for a couple of weeks. Um, and, you know, they're, they're clinging and being steadfast in faith. And so I think in the same way, there could be benefits for this country should that happen. It just testifies to how valuable Christ is if we're willing to lose everything for him. Um, I don't desire it. I don't, I don't want to be imprisoned. I don't want to be martyred, but um, I would be a hypocrite if I said Jesus wasn't worth those things because of course he is. Well, and you're making a smaller version of the point, Ben, which is simply that there isn't a lot of cultural capital that comes with being a Christian, right? right? And the more, like, just to even lose that and to say, you know, that's actually not what we're fighting for. I have to be, I'm reminded of something you said on a prior episode. The words, the, the phrase Christian worldview is <laughs> often just a euphemism for me getting all of my cultural preferences as a Christian, mm. right? And once those cultural preferences kind of get away and aren't held up on a pedestal anymore i think the true beauty of the gospel shines through better in the acts of the hills. i do think that's true amen so we're going to take one more break and then we are going to uh wrap up and talk a little bit about what we as christians can do or should do about this and we're back so um last question for us which is how should we as christians participate in sort of furthering, promoting, protecting religious liberty, uh, you know, in a healthy way? Um, well, I think as we, as we alluded to previously, I think doing so not in a spirit of fear is, is obviously key. Um, if things don't go our way, uh, still trusting in the Lord. Um, I do think making use of our citizenship and our, our rights as citizens to the degree that we can is useful. I mean, something we haven't talked about, but I think um, is an area of larger concern is just the conflict in educational spaces, which is obviously an, an area you know really well. Um, and I think that's kind of a place where um, there are things that are, are concerning. Um, and so we should be very aware of what's being taught in our kids' classrooms and um, weigh what it looks like to be a part of that system. I mean, you know, and for all intents and purposes, like our educational system is still part of where government and where government services and, you know, providing education meets with religious liberty. So that is a, that is a tension point. Um, so I think being attuned to, to what's happening there would be wise, but yeah, John Piper once said you should vote as, a, as if you're not voting, um, which sounds idiosyncratic, but what I took him to mean is like, we, we need to vote as a as stewardship, but not put our hopes in it. And in the same way, I think we need to advocate for religious liberty for everyone. Um, but again, not put our, our hope in laws or in policies that are going to protect that and, and proceed accordingly. Amen. Uh, this may sound too obvious to, to state, but I, I think the first thing I want to say is practice your religion. Right. Actually, Amen. if you're a Christian, be a Christian. Um, you know, live like one, um, a symbol with God's people on the Lord's day, a symbol for midweek Bible study, share your faith wherever you go, um, care for the poor, um, actually practice your faith. Um, that's what the, that's what the clause is meant to protect. Right. Um, and we, we're hypocrites if we say we care about religious liberty, but we don't actually use our liberty to worship God. Um, so first, that's the first thing I would say. Um, the second thing I would say is then protect the, the ability of others to practice their faith, right? Um, so, you know, people sometimes feel like if they're protecting the rights of others on this point, they're somehow endorsing that religion, which is wrong. No, you can, you can protect someone's right without agreeing with the content of their religious perspective. And we might be surprised how many doors that opens to us for genuine love your neighbor kinds of relationships and genuine gospel conversations. Um, 
So I think we want to practice our faith, protect the ability of others to practice their faith. And then thirdly, I, I think we want to have this on our political radar um, so that somewhere in our calculus of what we're looking for uh, in an elected official is our officials who are really clearly going to uphold the Constitution on this point uh, and, and preserve the religious freedoms of us all. And so that probably ought to be a criteria somewhere for you know, who you vote for politically. Um, and so those, and then, and then finally, prepare for persecution, right? I mean, be be ready in your heart and your mind for that day when practicing your religion might actually cost you something. Um, and I'm I'm just sort of in that camp of people who think that the the tales of persecutions of American Christians are wildly overstated. You know, we may be experiencing some some inconveniences, um, but relative to the the brothers and sisters who've been slaughtered in other parts of the world or driven underground. No, we are, we are immensely free and we ought to use that freedom um, for ourselves and for others. And not just in this country, but we ought to be promoting this ideal uh, abroad as well. I'm reminded, Thabiti, in your first example, practice your religion, the image that sprung to mind for me was um, just Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar, right? Where sort of immediately upon hearing the edict, you know, that you cannot pray uh, to your God. The first thing he does um, is fall on his knees to pray to his God. And it's like, as you say, exercising that religion and um, just what is so precious to us. I just think that's really, really important. And that, of course, is another, that's a great example of a uh, sort of a freedom of religion case right sure. there where there just wasn't any. It was all by the whim of the king that Daniel and his friends were or were not sort of technically allowed. Um, but actually, to your point, they were also willing to practice civil disobedience. So if you find yourself persecuted, then you know what the answer will be. The answer will be Daniel's answer. Yeah. Um, and that ain't such a bad thing. Um, so I, I, I have a couple of other sort of thoughts here. I think to your point to be, it's almost like we should be actively seeking and almost delighting in finding opportunities to protect the rights of others. Um, right? So the least of these, the most minority among us, right? Um, assuming they're not sort of, you know, with beliefs that are kind of way outside the discourse, you know, the, the, the examples before like human sacrifice, right? Mm -hmm. But assuming that they're kind of, you know, sort of close enough, you could say, let's really go out of our way to find those cases, right? And find our way to sort of lock arms with them. And I guess the other thing I guess I'd say is, if we find ourselves in the position of being advocates, Think about it, what it looks like to be actually modest in the demands we make, um, as opposed to maximalist in the demands we make, where it's not about capitulation to our position, but about accommodation of our position. So I will, I will make a plea for actually bringing back the word tolerance, which is actually like a, it's a word that's kind of fallen out of favor. I think growing up, we always talked about tolerance and no tolerance. And then we said, well, actually tolerance, it's kind of a, eh, it's not a great word because it just implies kind of a bare minimum, I tolerate you. But I think when it comes to sort of opposing worldviews, tolerance is actually the right word, right? You actually, you actually, that's kind of the equilibrium you want to get to, as opposed to annihilation of one by the other, yeah. um, which is your alternative, as it were, when they seem like they're zero sum. So I'll, I'll take an example from what I said before about contraception. So uh, in the Hobby Lobby case, famously Hobby Lobby won, they won an exemption in which they said, you know, we are not going to have to, you know, pay for contraception for our employees under this mandate, we've got an exception. And I think, I think the thing that, the only thing that troubles me about that actually is the, you, you couldn't help escape the suspicion in reading the coverage in the commentary that what we really wanted was for no one to pay for contraception right? Like that's the actual position. We think this is just terrible. And therefore, you know, religious liberty is kind of a Trojan horse for just, this is the belief we want everyone to adopt. Um, and I think it's, it's much more powerful if you say, no, 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 no. We really do want to respect the fact that, you know, Congress democratically passed a law that says they want to do this. We just think there needs to be an accommodation of those who have different beliefs and to kind of have that posture um, where you can. You can't always do that. There are cases when your conscience won't let you do that, right? But there are some where you can. And I think where we could, not being maximalist in the demands we make is really important. So rediscovering tolerance, rediscovering uh, pluralism, 
I think is the other thing I would advise us to do as, as Christians is that'll make us much more, I think, winsome advocates for religious liberty and advocates for religious liberty where people take us seriously and they don't just say, they don't just think that's just a smokescreen for them to get everything that they want. And I think in its worst, that's the kind of caricature that's put upon us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, well, with um, that in mind, um, we've, we've talked a little bit about uh, religious liberty. Stay tuned next week when we will talk, we'll expand the discussion and talk about the institution that's at the center of uh, so many of these disputes, which is the Supreme Court. Um, we've been meaning to talk about this for a while, so that's what we'll be covering next week. Um, with that in mind, Beatty, you want to go ahead and pray us out? Yeah, thank you for a great conversation, brothers. Let's pray. Father, we do give you thanks that in your sovereignty and providence, you've allowed us the blessings of living in this country. We thank you for the freedoms, Lord, that you have providentially guided the, the framers to enshrine uh, in the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and uh, in legal code and statute. And we pray, O oh Lord, that um, you would cause righteousness to shine forth through um, our laws. We pray that our laws would be, uh, therefore, then consistent with the truths of your word. Um, and though we don't live in a theocratic kingdom, Lord, we, we do pray that um, all people here made in your image with the light of conscience would be able to apprehend something of the truth. And that truth would be um, part of the glue that holds us together. Help us to be people who do practice our faith, Lord, with glad hearts, enjoying the freedom that you've given us, maximizing it, and help us, O oh Lord, to protect um, this freedom of conscience and, and liberty when it comes to religion uh, for our neighbors, O oh Lord. Help us to love them in that way, even as we seek to persuade them to believe on Christ and so be saved. We give you great praise for allowing us to live in this day and in this country with the opportunities that you have afforded. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 This episode was brought to you in part by the Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.